0: Revelation chapter 7 is where we'll pick back up tonight in our study of the book of Revelation. And, uh, you know, just by way of some review, you keep in mind where we were, where we last left off. It's been at least three weeks uh, since we were in our study. But you remember we finished chapter 6, and uh, as it records... The Lamb, which is Jesus, opening six of the seven seals. In chapter 5, John saw the Lamb take the scroll that was sealed with seven seals because he's the only one worthy to open it. And throughout the ancient Roman world, a will was executed only as seven witnesses were present to seal it, which made it an official document. And so, Here in Revelation, you've got this seven-sealed scroll that represents really the messianic kingdom that was promised throughout the Old Testament. Who does the kingdom belong to? Well, the kingdom belongs to the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by receiving the scroll, he's receiving his inheritance to be king over his rightful kingdom. And that's the goal of human history. Uh, History is not just you know, blindly moving forward into some squishy unknown future, the history of humanity is moving toward the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so the Lamb taking this scroll, which, again, it's the title deed to the earth, the title deed to his inheritance as the rightful king, uh, this is the ultimate goal. Dwight Pentecost says of this, if the scroll is not opened, then that means there's no protection for God's children in the hours of trial. No judgment upon an evil persecuting world. No ultimate triumph for believers. No new heaven or earth. No future inheritance. So when the Lamb takes the scroll, the history of the world reaches its ultimate climax as the Lord Jesus Christ opens the seals and begins this step-by-step process of removing control of the world from evil, and forever ridding the world of sin and death. And yet, the necessary steps for preparing the world for that will involve a period of judgment, unparalleled judgments during the tribulation period. And so the breaking of these seals uh, will take place during that final seven-year period known as the tribulation. So the sixth chapter of Revelation, we saw that it opens with the, uh, really begins with the opening of the first Of the six seal judgments. Uh, The first seal was opened and it involved the rider on a white horse and we talked about how this described a false sense of peace and security that will be promised by a final end-time Antichrist figure. The second seal when it's opened John sees a rider on a red horse and again this is symbolic of war and conflict and violence that will be characteristic of the time. The third seal is opened and involves a rider on a black horse holding a pair of scales. And this is a fitting symbol of economic difficulty, even collapse. And the fourth seal, when it's opened, John sees a rider on a pale horse whose name is Death. Hell is following in his wake. So you've got the first four seal judgments that really involve the delusion, the destruction, deprivation, and death that will be characteristic of a final period of human history, Daniel's 70th week or the tribulation period as it's also known. That then brought us to verse 9 in chapter 6, the breaking of the fifth and then the sixth seal, which really takes us all the way through the middle of the tribulation period and into the second half. And the fifth seal, you notice that it's... uh, Martyrs are associated with the breaking of the fifth seal. Cataclysmic uh, events on earth characteristic of the sixth seal. And um, most of the judgments that will come later, that we'll find out later in Revelation, are the result of the opening of the seventh seal. Now, the opening of the seventh seal really involves seven trumpet judgments The seventh trumpet judgment involves seven bold judgments which are poured out in rapid succession, culminating in the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus in chapter 19 to destroy Antichrist and to set up his kingdom upon the earth. So all of history really is moving toward this climax. It's the kingdom of God on earth. And the enemy is fighting against that. You want to know why Christianity is persecuted and why everything is true but the truth as culture goes and society goes, it's because the evil one wants to keep people in the dark and wants to keep humanity from moving toward to that, that end-time goal where Jesus Christ is coming to establish his king, all right? So uh, if you remember a few weeks ago, I gave you really a couple of charts, and one of those charts was a sequence of events in, in Revelation chapter 6 all the way through chapter 20. Because really the book progresses and then will pause for an intermission or an interlude. it will get back to the main action and then it'll pause again for another interlude or intermission. You, you could, could kind of think of it like a play where the book goes back and forth between scenes, alternating uh, between heaven and earth. And knowing this is absolutely important uh, for you to be able, really be able to understand the book and follow it uh, in, in really a clear way. So notice how this kind of plays out. You've got the three series of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. The seals, they're recorded in chapter 6. The trumpets, chapters 8 and 9. The bowls, chapter 16. And really these follow each other in sequence and move the action toward the culmination of the kingdom. But you see, the thing is, there's also some intermissions that you've got to pay close attention to where there's a break in the action, and John is given a vision whereby he is sort of clued in on key players and key events uh, during the tribulation period, Even, even going way back into history past to explain sort of this ongoing war between evil, and good. So you'll see this, uh, the first intermission we'll come to is this chapter we're going to look at tonight, chapter 7, where the main action in chapter 6 brings us all the way to the breaking of the sixth seal. You get to chapter 7, and you'll notice that we don't move immediately to the seventh seal, but there's, there's sort of some ex- explanation that's going to go on, an intermission. The main action will pick back up in chapter 8, Through chapter 9, with the seventh seal, the seven trumpets, and then there's another intermission between the sixth and seventh trumpet, where in chapters 10 through 15, you've got some explanation uh, with regard to Israel, with regard to uh, Satan and the enemy and the way that he persecutes the people of God, and so on and so forth. So just keep that in mind. So I said all that to just simply say, by way of introduction, chapter 7 forms a parenthetical section or a parenthesis between the sixth and seventh seals, and really it serves as the answer to the question that's asked at the end of chapter 6. If you look at chapter 6, verse 17, the question is asked, for the great day of their wrath has come, that is, the Lamb... And the Father, the great day of God's wrath has come, and here's the question, who can stand? Who can stand? And so in answer to that question, you get into chapter 7, and we're going to be introduced to two groups of people who will survive the judgments unleashed on the world during the tribulation period. And that first group we'll see in the first eight verses They are the 144,000 of Israel who are sealed from every tribe. The second group is a multitude, really an innumerable multitude that John sees around the throne, made up of people from every nation, every language, every tribe, every tongue. All right, so let me just read this. I want to read the whole chapter, but tonight we're probably just going to limit the focus of our conversation to this 144,000 in verses 1 through 8. Who are they? So verse 1, John says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. So, so the, the word goes out before these cataclysmic judgments associated with the, the, the breaking of the seals, and in particular, I think that sixth seal, there's a word that goes out saying that There's a group of people who are going to be protected. Verse 4, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, and 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Aren't you glad that this lamb is also the shepherd? The sacrificial lamb is also the one who's the shepherd of his little lambs. So this is an interesting passage of Scripture. In fact, this chapter has perhaps been the subject of more discussion and debate, maybe more so than any other passage in Revelation. And, as you can well imagine, there's quite a bit of disagreement among Bible teachers, especially as it relates to the first several verses and the identity of these 144,000 who were mentioned. And so some questions often are raised, are these symbolic of the church or are they Jewish? There's even been some outlandish ideas espoused by the cults, such as Jehovah Witnesses who say that these 144,000 are Jehovah's Witnesses, and they're the only ones who are going to be in heaven. That was really interesting. After there were more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses, they had to come back and say, well, there are different levels of that. Seventh-day Adventism says that these are strictly those who faithfully worshipped on the Sabbath. And then even within the church, you've had many who've had differing views on who they are, people who hold to differing positions as far as eschatology. Those who are amillennial versus those who are premillennial hold to differing interpretations of these 144,000. Uh, those who hold to the amillennial view see them as being symbolic of the church. This is the spiritual Israel. Daniel, uh, Danny Akin says it this way in his little commentary on Revelation. He says to wrestle excessively over this is to miss the fact that Jew and Gentile alike will be gathered around the throne and the lamb in heaven and that the focus of the text is the worship of this lamb who will shepherd the nations. In other words, this is really a good thought. He says this is one of the greatest texts in the whole Bible to encourage a passionate, radical, and sacrificial missionary agenda because the Lord Jesus has promised us that every nation will be there. Now, personally, I'm of the belief that these 144,000 who are described in the first eight verses are Jewish. And I believe that they will serve a very specific purpose in the tribulation period, and that purpose will involve an evangelistic harvest the likes of which the world has never seen. In fact, some would say that this chapter is really just one big group spoken of in symbolic terms in the first eight verses and then spoken of in more literal terms in the final several verses, and they lump all this together, just one group of people. Well, I see see a couple of things going on here. And especially when you consider what's said in chapter 14 about the 144,000, there seems to be a correlation between the innumerable multitude at the end of the passage and the sealing of the servants of God in the first part of the chapter. And really, this passage is a wonderful reminder that even in the midst of judgment, our God is full of mercy. Now, keep in mind what's already been said in chapter 6 as far as judgment. The tribulation will be a time of judgment on earth, and yet even in the midst of that, think about the mercy of God. Think about the ultimate promises of God. Adrian Rogers says that this passage shows us that there is no no promise too hard for God that he can't keep, no person too hard for God that he can't save, and ultimately no problem too hard for God that he can't solve. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to I'm gonna steal from Adrian Rogers tonight because I can't think of a better outline for this chapter, all right? So think about this with me. Uh, there is no promise too hard for God that he cannot keep. And I think there's a very real principle here. That's a very real principle that you see uh, in, in these verses. As it pertains to the 144,000 whom I believe are Jewish Well, again, uh, according to the premillennial dispensational viewpoint which I tend to hold, I believe that the rapture of the church has happened prior to the tribulation period. And these 144,000 here who are mentioned, notice that the text specifically says that they are sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. What's the tribulation period really all about? Well, the Scripture says that it's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's Daniel's 70th week. It's God dealing with the nation of Israel. The Apostle Paul uh, in Romans chapter 11 talks about how uh, the Redeemer, he's going to appear out of Zion in fulfillment of Old Testament promise and, and, and after which all of Israel will be saved. And so what you see represented here really is the first fruits of the nation of Israel who will serve a very specific purpose during the tribulation period, and that purpose is an evangelistic purpose, a purpose whereby these share the gospel. They they will be a missionary force, one person has said, unlike the world has ever seen in the last days. When you consider how that's going to be a very difficult, dark period of time on earth, the fact that these are sealed, The fact that these are servants of God under protection, God's going to use them for this very specific mission and purpose. So just a couple of things to consider. I want to maybe just kind of go back into the Old Testament and really establish the basis for this particular interpretation. So the context of their interpretation. Why do I personally believe that these are Jewish? Well, first of all, if we follow the... the the, the grammatical, historical, literal interpretation of Scripture that we would apply everywhere else, the text tells us here that these are 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And it would seem to me that there is indeed a distinction between this group in the first eight verses as opposed to those in the last part of the chapter who really represent, it's really the fruit of their evangelistic labor, And specifically that group, the innumerable multitude, we're told that they come from every nation, from every tribe and every language. So for someone to say, well, this is really just the same group of people, but notice the text says that there's a distinction that's being made. Here's a Jewish distinction being made for these 144,000. And yet there's something that connects them to this innumerable multitude that's before the throne of God. Men and women and people from every nation, every tribe who come out of the great tribulation. I think one of the things we tend to overlook is that during the tribulation period, even though it will be a time of darkness and fear and terror and judgment, folks, there will be people who come to know the Lord and who will be saved during the tribulation period. Now someone says, well, does that mean that I can put off salvation now and if Jesus comes and I enter into the tribulation period, I'll just go talk to one of these 144,000 Jews and they can tell me how to get saved. (laughs) Well, I also think that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that there are those who had opportunity to be saved who will be sent strong delusion during the last days. And yet there's still a lot of people around the world who have never heard the name of Jesus. There's been so much light here in the West. Ours really is an issue of rejection in a lot of ways. So don't just assume that if the the rapture of the church were to happen now and the tribulation period were to begin, that you'd automatically have the chance to get saved because the Bible says that those who refuse to believe the truth and love the truth and be saved, God's going to send them a strong delusion connected with antichrist so that they would believe the lie. The scripture says today is the day of salvation. If I didn't think I was, I wouldn't wait. I think I'd get saved now. <laughs> well, there's opportunity. So let's talk a little bit about the context, why well, I believe these are Jewish evangelists, aside from the fact what the text says, Okay. There are various frameworks of interpretation, often we've looked at this, that are applied to prophecy, a framework sort of what holds something together. And a very important building block of a prophetic framework, really it's understanding the promises that God made with Abraham and his descendants. Now keep in mind the overarching principle here, there is no promise too hard for God that he cannot keep. And what are the promises that have been made in the Old Testament? Well, you go back into the Old Testament, it's clear that God established a covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. So keep in mind the fact that Revelation really is the record of how the promises of God made in Genesis will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Our God is a promise-keeping God. And when he makes a covenant, he keeps that covenant. And so how you interpret the covenants really of the Old Testament will determine the way you understand so much of end-time events. Uh, and it will really help you answer questions that are still significant today. What are those questions? Well, who owns the land of Israel? That's a, that's a debate that's raging right now in the Middle East and has been raging. Uh, That's a debate that's raging on the floor of the UN. Who owns the land? Who does the land ultimately belong to? Another question, is there a future for the Jewish people? Does God still have something in mind for Israel, or is he through with Israel as a nation? Has the church replaced Israel? If God does have a future for Israel, what does that future look like? Well, here's the thing. By way of context, we go all the way back into the Old Testament. There are four major unconditional covenants that God established with Abraham and his descendants. And these covenants established a permanent relationship between God and his people. And by the way, listen, these covenants are vital for understanding the end times because ultimately Israel will fulfill these in the millennial kingdom. You go back into the Old Testament and if there seem to be promises that God made to Israel such as the possession of land and the ownership of land and the kingdom that was promised to David and David's seed, are we to just spiritualize all of that like so many do? Many in the amillennial camp want to spiritualize all of that and say, well, all of that ultimately has been fulfilled in the church. Now, folks, listen to me. There is truth In the fact that the church, we are recipients spiritually of the blessings that have been made to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. But that does not mean for one split second that God has written Israel off. It does not mean that God is not ultimately going to keep his promise that he initially made to Abraham and to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai and to David, and ultimately the New Covenant. So we go back into the Old Testament. I want you to do that. Go to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12 and then Genesis 15. You say, why are you you taking us all the way back? Because listen, I want you to know why I personally believe that these 144,000 are indeed Jewish Evangelist, 144,000, literally sealed from the tribes of Israel. So the first thing that we see here, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, has to do with the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. You remember when God initially calls Abram, this is before his name is changed. Uh, Genesis 12, the Lord says to Abram, go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, listen to this, all families of the earth shall be blessed. Now who's 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 represented in, in the Abrahamic covenant right there? Blessing, as far as blessing is concerned. Everybody. <laughs> but it involves a specific covenant that God is establishing with Abram the Hebrew and his descendants, Israel. God is going to do something. Which means he's establishing a covenant, an unconditional promise to Abraham, to Abraham's descendants. He's going to bring blessing to them. But listen, he's blessing them so that he can bring blessing to the entire world. And who is the world made up of? People from every nation, every tribe, every kindred, every tongue. So you go back to Revelation 7 in your mind there. and Keep in mind the first eight verses is talking about... What God's going to do specifically in the tribulation period with a group of Jews that somehow is going to affect people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. That's not unusual because it's in keeping with God's intention all along. All along. So God promised to bless Abraham, to make him a great nation, and bring blessing to the world through his descendants. So this is absolutely monumental. Now, when you consider the provisions of this covenant, this really is not a covenant that's formalized with Abraham until you get to chapter 15. So you go to chapter 15. Scripture says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Keep in mind what God's promised that he's going to do. He's going to bring blessing to the whole world through Abram's descendants. But he's like, I don't have any descendants. (laughs) So what are you going to do? Well, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And the Bible says that he believed the Lord and he, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Justification is by faith. It's a major theme in the Romans. And Paul uses Abraham as, as, as an example of that. Verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now watch this. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, he cut them in half, and he laid them Uh, Each half over against the other, but he didn't cut the birds in half. So this is a very bloody practice. And this is the way that a covenant, uh, cutting a covenant is how it was referred to in, in ancient times. Where two parties would formally enter into a binding agreement. This is what God is doing with Abram here. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that's not theirs. they will be servants there. They'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. And you shall be buried in a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now listen, this is, this is the glory of God here. Compare this to what led the Israelites out of Egypt during their wilderness wanderings. Same language. Same descriptive terms used here to describe the manifest presence of God. Here you have God walking among the pieces of the sacrifice. So in those days when a formal covenant was made between two parties and those sacrificial animals were divided and there was blood that had been shed, both of those parties would walk among those pieces. It was a symbolic way of saying, I'm committed to this deal with my own blood. So here's what God is doing. He's walking among those pieces of that sacrifice here. But you got to watch what happens here. On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates, really from Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates, land that Israel historically has never fully possessed, but it's been promised to them. It belongs to them based on the promise that God has made to Abram here. Now, here's the thing. God is walking among the pieces, but where's Abram? What is he doing? He's sleeping. This is an unconditional covenant that God is making with Abram, regardless of who Abram is and what he's doing at that particular moment. By the way, read the Gethsemane account in light of this covenant where you've got the disciples when Jesus is praying and sweat drops of blood are pouring down his brow. What are the disciples doing? Aren't you glad our God didn't say, well, y'all blew it. I'm just going to go ahead and send back to heaven. Y'all are on it on your own. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a promise-keeping God. This is an unconditional covenant that God has made with Abram here personal, universal, national implications. The personal promise that God makes to Abraham is that he would make his name great. That promise was made literally and it was fulfilled literally in Abraham's life. We know the text says that he owned herds and had vast resources, but the promise was universal. God promised that through him, all families of the earth would be blessed. And we know that that's been fulfilled in the unique blessing that's come to the world through Jesus Christ, the gospel. And yet, even that right now is a partial fulfillment that's still awaiting a future literal fulfillment in the future kingdom of Jesus. God makes a national promise to Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation and the land would be theirs. And some people say, well, you know, you can't really take all that literally. Yeah, you can, because Abraham took it literally. God meant it literally. And so much of that promise has been literally fulfilled, and yet there still is a future component that is awaiting a future literal fulfillment in the kingdom of Jesus. All right, so really everything that God does in redemptive history from this point forward, flows out of the covenant promise that he's made to Abraham. Now, think about that. That brings us to really a second key covenant, and that's the Mosaic covenant. Several centuries later, here here you have the descendants of Abraham. They truly are a great nation. God gave Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac, and Isaac had a son, Jacob, who was the son of promise, who has 12 sons, who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And they begin to grow, and they move to Egypt in a famine, and of course, you know the story of Joseph and how eventually another pharaoh in Egypt arises who didn't know Joseph or what Joseph had done, and they, the Egyptians enslave God's people, and they're there in bondage 400 years in Egypt as the slaves of the Egyptians and God redeems his people through bringing judgments upon the Egyptians in the form of 10 plagues God brings them out of Egypt he brings them to the base of Mount Sinai there he reveals his law and the Mosaic covenant with Israel is established and God's law is given And so much of the covenant has to do with the land promise, especially as it's reiterated in Deuteronomy chapter 30. In fact, why don't you go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 30 and see uh, what this has to say concerning the land. And again, all of this flows out of the Abrahamic covenant. It's God keeping his promises. So when you see God making these covenants throughout Old Testament history, be reminded that... You know, the the former covenant hasn't been abrogated, but this is just God's way of keeping his word. Y'all, are you glad that our God in heaven keeps his word? If he didn't keep his word, we'd have no hope of salvation. How could we believe the gospel could ever apply to us? No, God is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. Now, Deuteronomy chapter thirty. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Now keep in mind, the Mosaic covenant, even though it too is an unconditional covenant, there are conditional terms as far as Israel's occupation of the land. The land would always be theirs, but if they were to disregard the law of God and disobey God and not keep the terms of the covenant, what'd God say he would do? He'd drive them out of the land among the nations. Did the land cease to be theirs? Did God say, okay, I'm taking the land back and I'm gonna give it to someone else? Mm -hmm. That's not what God said he would do. He would discipline his people among the nations. That's what the Babylonian captivity was all about. But when they would repent... And remember the terms of the covenant. Cry out to God. What did God promise that he would do? Well, look at what he says here in Deuteronomy 30. When you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul. Verse 3, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcast or in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, that you may live." So you see what God is doing here. He's saying he's going to keep his promise. Even when they are disobedient, they've been expelled from the land because of their disobedience. As repentance is worked about in their heart, God eventually will bring them back into the land because God does not go back on his word. So you've got the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant flows out of that as also does the Davidic covenant covenant. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse number 12. By the way, keep in mind the fact God's promise to Abraham involved land, descendants, kings would come. So the seed, salvation, all of, that is, 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 it, all of that is promised to Abraham. And when God's making covenants with Israel, and then he reiterates that with David, this is an extension of the Abrahamic covenant. This is God keeping his word. So bear this in mind when you see it here in chapter 7. This is God's covenant with David. Really just skip down to verse 12 and look through verse 12 through verse 16. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What's the word? Forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, there's a lot going on here in this particular promise. But ultimately, the promise to David is this. David, you will never cease to have a son seated upon your throne Now, of course, Solomon follows in his father's steps, and he becomes king, and he reigns for 40 years, but Solomon dies. Rehoboam becomes king. The kingdom's divided. The northern kingdom, you've got 10 tribes pull out and form their own kingdom. You've got the southern kingdom made up of Benjamin and Judah. They remain loyal to the Davidic throne. You've got some of those Davidic kings who are really wicked men. And God promises that he's going to discipline them with the rod of men, but that does not mean that he's going to turn back on his original promise that he's made to David because, again, all of this is pointing forward to something in the future. The promise made to Abraham, the promise made to Israel through Moses, and now the promise that's made to David. Here you see God working behind the scenes through history, establishing covenants, making promises. And those promises involve Israel, so that ultimately all nations of the earth can receive blessing as well. One more of these that I want you to see is the New Covenant. And to see that, you need to go to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 And again, this covenant also amplifies God's original salvation promise to Abraham. God promised blessing would come to the world through Abraham's descendants. There would be, by the way, there'd be a certain emptiness and lack of success if Messiah came to reign on David's throne and ruled over the designated land area that had been promised, but he governed an unregenerate wicked people. So the promises through Abraham, Moses, Moses, David is that God is going to do something where he's going to establish a kingdom, and that kingdom is going to be a perfect kingdom in which righteousness dwells. Oh my goodness. Isn't that really what the issue is in our day? Man is looking for the perfect king and the perfect government and the perfect form of government. We look around and we see issues in our society. Perceived inequities here and real real lack. He, and someone says, well, how is all of this going to be solved? God has a king in mind. Amen. God has a kingdom in mind. <laughs> but see, God's got to do something from the inside out. And so the promise of the new covenant is, again, he, God's not going back on his word to Abraham, to Israel, to David, but this is more revelation of what he's going to do. Verse 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, I will be their God, they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So God's promised he's going to do something on the inside of the hearts of his people. He's going to give them a new heart. Now listen, we know that this has been ultimately fulfilled by Jesus in the gospel. Don't we? And you and I, the mystery of mysteries is that we've been let in on these promises, and that we're recipients of these new covenant blessings, even though ethnically we're not Israel. (laughs) Now, listen to this. That doesn't mean God's done with Israel, though, because. Keep reading. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me declares the Lord then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Here's what God is saying. He's saying... History, the universe, the solar system, the laws that I have built into nature will come unraveled before Israel ceases to be a people. So let those ayatollahs threaten all they want to to wipe the nation of Israel off the map. But all you're doing is spitting into the wind because it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. The enemy's tried it before. He tried it through Haman uh, who had gallows built to execute the Jews only to be hung on his own gallows. The the enemy's tried it beyond that, uh, even to captivity. Uh, Think about this. Hitler and the extermination of six million Jews in the Holocaust. And don't tell me that God's through with the nation of Israel because 1948, who's ever heard of an ancient people in a day being born, a nation being born in a day and being brought back into land that had been promised to their ancestor thousands and thousands of years before. And that a hundred years ago, there were roughly 24,000 Jews living in Palestine. And now, there are more than 7 million. And that by 2030, all estimates say that there will be more Jews living in Israel than those who are not. And we better wake up because this is a prophetic sign according to what the Scriptures teach. Proof that we're living in last days. You say, well, why are you saying all of that? Because listen, you really... You can easily explain away these 144,000 and say, well, no, that doesn't really mean what it says. And buy into the fact that well, God's through with Israel, no, he's not. Because what I see in Revelation chapter 7 is God who's made a promise in the Old Testament, who's keeping his promise all the way through the end of history. And all that's made possible through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. And the tribulation period is going to be a time in which, listen, Israel is going to come to faith in her Messiah. The prophet Zechariah, the Lord says, they're going to look upon me whom they pierced. And in that day, there's going to be a fountain opened up for the house of Israel. Now these 144,000, I believe the scripture teaches that these are going to be specifically Jewish evangelists, the first fruits of Israel. And you know what? They're going to announce the news to the nations when the nations are in confusion, rocking and reeling during the tribulation period itself. There will be people who come to know the Lord, even though it means martyrdom, even though these multitudes who were referred to at the end of chapter 7, they come out of the Great Tribulation, but but look at how they were persecuted. So folks, all all I'm saying is, I agree with Adrian Rogers, there is no promise too hard for God that he can't keep. God never pulls a bait and switch. (laughs) He doesn't make promises to get elected and then do something different. No, he's never up for re-election or election. He just reigns. He rules. And when he speaks, his word is final. Let's stand for prayer tonight. I gotta stop here. There is no promise too hard for God to keep. That ought to be a real encouragement to you in your life, especially when you find yourself maybe discouraged, when you feel lonely, because he's promised he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. He's promised that your sin is forgiven if you ever feel guilty over things that you've done, and you said, I've, I've asked God to forgive me a thousand times. Well, listen to me. That was 999 times too much. Because the promise of God is this, and he's faithful and just. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to remove our guilt from us, paid with the blood of Jesus. We'll pick this back up, and I'll show you how really these 144,000. I believe that they have an evangelistic purpose. We'll look at that next week. But Lord, thank you for your word and for the promises of your word and how the scripture says that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. That he's really the fulfillment of all of the, the promises you've made to Abraham and Israel and David and the new covenant. Lord, you'll keep your word and you've kept your word. And the kingdom belongs to Jesus. And the nations may rage, the enemy may try to keep people in the dark. But Lord, this world is coming to Jesus. In the darkest moments of our lives, Lord, may we never doubt your promises. That even when it looks like all hope is lost, and when the odds are against your people, Lord, that's when you do your best work. And so, Lord, we're encouraged by this wonderful truth tonight. Lord, thank you that we've been saved from the wrath which is to come. And as your people, we don't have to fear the wrath of God. That doesn't mean we're not going to suffer in the world. But we know that ultimately, no matter what we experience for the sake of our faith, whether it's martyrdom or persecution, you've told us in your word, blessed are you when men shall revile you and hate you and persecute you for my name's sake. We don't fear those who can kill the body but can't touch the soul, but rather we fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So, Lord, as we go forth tonight, whatever issues are going on in the lives of your people, whatever wisdom they need for decisions or strength they need to face various issues, Lord, I pray they look to the promise-making, promise-keeping God. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.